Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 27. The Tragedy of Narcissism. The diagnosis of narcissism appears to have come into vogue, not only in the field of clinical psychology. It is an inescapable diagnosis for just about any critique of contemporary society, frequently being invoked as the psychological explanation for failed relationships or reckless behaviour of all sorts, even for catastrophic political decisions. Presumably explaining everything from the presidents of great nations to the driving habits of alpha males on the highway. Even our selfish disregard for the impact our behaviour has for society and the planet. Or think of so-called social media, where the promotion and celebration of the self takes on excessive forms. Are these all manifestations of a collective narcissism? What exactly are we talking about when we talk of narcissism? How do such diagnoses of our times relate to the clinical and psychoanalytical understanding of narcissism? Narcissists are generally understood as people who appear exceptionally enamoured with themselves, whose conviction that they occupy the centre of the world is without limitations. There is no doubt that such characterizations are readily found so-called extroverted or phallic narcissism. Like addicts, narcissists of this kind crave validation and admiration from others, must incessantly prove themselves and demonstrate great achievements, or, in their absence, at least fake them. They live a life of apparent superlatives, the smartest, the most beautiful, the fastest, the richest, the most athletic, and so on. They often captivate at first sight, as they glitter and shine. Anywhere they stand or go, the spotlight seems to follow. But anyone who comes close, or moreover steps in their way, will come to grips with an entirely different side. For at the same time narcissists are easily offended cannot take criticism, and cannot handle competition. Anyone who forms a relationship with one, whether that be business, private, or even a romantic relationship, will quickly encounter characteristic patterns and dynamics in their relationship, about which we will hear more in a moment. Over time, most are deterred by the success of supposed self-love, the egocentricism, the absence of empathy, not to mention the inability to accept criticism or admit mistakes. They polarise and divide, arouse anger and disapproval, provoke rage and malice, even contempt, which all figures into the tragic and sad dynamic that is narcissism. The sad side of narcissism is at first less evident, but as we will hear, it highlights a critical point. But what is the origin of narcissism? Not every show-off is a narcissist. Not everyone who comes across as self-confident, egotistical or thoughtless. 
What is certain, however, is that most narcissists have tremendous difficulties seeing things from the perspective of others in a truly empathetic way, which manifests itself in a rather one-dimensional way of thinking. Narcissists with high school intelligence, who are clever and shrewd, may well be able to very convincingly emulate empathy and multidimensionality, not infrequently in the form of refined sophistry, meaning ways of thinking that at first glance sound highly rational and logical, making them quite convincing. After all, they know that they are supposed to respect others' perspectives, should praise and applaud others' successes, and may outwardly do exactly that. But ultimately, in the world of narcissism, there is always and only one perspective to consider, one's own. But are such practices and perceptions the real product of a boundless and true self-love? The term narcissism is derived from the Greek myth of Narcissus, a remarkably handsome but vain young man. Narcissus dismisses his numerous suitors and admirers in a cold and insensitive fashion. For the tremendous suffering he inflicted on others, he eventually receives the punishment of insatiable self-love. He is supposed to experience with his own body how mortally lonely one feels in his presence. Consequently, Narcissus falls so hopelessly in love with his own reflection in which, alas, he cannot recognise himself, that he eventually perishes and dies. Narcissism, as we have heard, is always bent on superlatives. So when the British writer Oscar Wilde explored this story from the pool's perspective in his poem The Disciple, the pool had this to say about Narcissus. But I loved Narcissus because... As he lay on my banks and looked down at me, in the mirror of his eyes I saw ever my own beauty mirrored. Is narcissism really about excessive self-love? Such an interpretation would only touch the surface. It is a psychoanalytical truism that the way one portrays oneself to the outside is not identical with how one feels inside. Which, by the way, is why self-assessment questionnaires provide only limited insight into the true core of one's personality. The reality can, in fact, be the exact opposite. In keeping with the maxim, where everything glitters and shines, filth silently abounds. This is not only true for the prim and proper, who, in actuality, have their own dirty laundry to hide but also for many who want to appear all too self-indulgent, powerful, glorious, and exalted. The mirror of narcissism has the capacity to transform things into their very opposite. That which a narcissist wants least of all to see in their reflected image is in fact that which they actually do feel and think about themselves. Indeed, narcissism is not actually the expression of an especially high self-worth, but rather a way of keeping an extremely fragile self-worth in balance. And the more weight dragging the one side down, 
the more force needed to jack the other side up. Narcissism is a form of psychological defence, used to stabilise self-worth. All of us utilise narcissistic defence strategies from time to time, usually when we are feeling slighted. As in the following example, we fall in love with someone and yet get turned down. A typical thing we may say to ourselves would be, there are plenty of other fish in the sea. What we are also saying is that the desired person was not so amazing and terrific after all. In other words, we devalue the desired person who has spurned us, for by comparing ourselves with the person we so desired, we settle the balance by assuring ourselves we could just as well find others of the same calibre. The value that we should actually have deducted from our own self-worth after being rejected, we ultimately end up deducting from the value of the other person. Another typical behaviour pattern would be compensation. In other words, using a substitute or alternative to recover feelings of self-worth that were lost. For instance, in our example, by surrounding oneself at the next party with extra-desirable men and women, and by appearing exceptionally at ease, high-spirited and independent. To some degree, these defence strategies are an important and useful means of protection and serve to maintain a healthy self-worth. What hurts, say, in the case of rejection, is not only that a wish has remained unfulfilled, but that our desires have exposed us, offering a peek into our longings and urges, where we have now been left cold. For every injury to our self-worth, or one could say, for every narcissistic injury, there is a feeling of shame, to be exposed for who we are, what we are, and the way we are. To be made to look foolish or to be rejected for an essential part of our identity. For a start, narcissistic defences or compensation strategies are like a protective shield over a wounded part of the self and not something pathological. As long as they do not grow into our skin and transform into character armour, that is to say, they do not develop into an integral and inflexible part of one's personality. But why put on such armour? Because protection is not only needed under special and extraordinary circumstances, but permanently. Everything is an attack on self-worth, even the slightest stirrings lacking praise or confirmation. Every deficit in knowledge all failures strike an existential feeling of shame. Even though the armour of narcissism is often dazzling and brightly polished, this should not mislead. In fact, it conceals a highly fragile self-worth. Anyone who has had any close contact with a narcissistic person will often discover behind the outwardly displayed facade of grandiosity superiority and contempt, that the inside contains the very opposite, 
feelings of insignificance, inadequacy, powerlessness. At the same time, narcissists can often have great difficulties owning up to their feelings of insignificance, dependency and powerlessness, or even recognising them at all, even when it is obvious to others. We have already heard about two typical defence strategies, devaluation and compensation, and narcissists can make use of these to an exhaustive amount. The mechanism of devaluation can show up quite openly or remain hidden. For example, behind intellectual refinement, theories, worldviews, which may very well agree with reality, while in a psychically still carrying on their primary function of reaffirming the ego. The others are stupid, bad, their perspective worthless. The things I can't achieve, I don't really want. The others are successful only because they are dishonest, corrupt, conformist. Sometimes, however, these devaluations fade entirely into the background, and narcissists may be able to superficially show appreciation for others and maintain good social relations. While in the background, however, there hides feelings of true global contempt, as if, in truth, nothing had any worth, even one's own success. Even praise from others is received with secret contempt by the personality structure of a narcissist. Compensation strategies can be equally crude. Think of the loud roaring Ferrari that races through the streets at night to demonstrate that one is anything but small and impotent. Or office towers that stretch up to the skyline over major cities, bearing one's own name. The con artist employs a more subtle deception, sustained primarily by the pleasure they get from leading others around by the nose, by the feeling of being more clever, more cunning than all others. As we see in these examples, Narcissistic defence strategies are at the expense of others, but are not necessarily the expression of a desire for evil. Deliberate maliciousness applies more to a specific form of narcissism, so-called malignant narcissism, which we will hear about in the next episode. It is much more common that such snobbish or inconsiderate behaviour represents a profoundly desperate attempt to create a replacement for one's self-worth. The dilemma of the narcissist lies in the fact that he or she does not have a stable inner self-worth. The well of inner self-worth is dry, as it were. But since a sense of self-worth is existentially important for everyone, a narcissist has no choice but to draw it from other external sources. And, in this way, they therefore become very dependent on them. What is important for understanding the dynamics of narcissism, however, is not only how the narcissist themselves feels, but also how others feel in their presence. For example, the following situation is not unusual. A company meeting has been called, everyone is present, 
Only the boss seems to be missing. The staff smirks somewhat, for it is the boss who always attaches so much importance to punctuality. And yet it is he, of all people, who routinely shows up late. At last he comes rushing into the conference room ten minutes late, without offering any apologies, instead berating the employee who had organised the meeting. He instructs him that next time he should pick a better time, since everyone knows that rush hour traffic is unpredictable at this time of day, and that it is all but certain that he will be late. It is possible that the employee may at this point already feel quite guilty and ashamed of himself in front of the others, and may even apologise. Perhaps, however, he is also more self-confident and answers, a bit perplexed, that they had indeed discussed the time in advance, and that this was, in fact, the time that the boss had requested himself. The boss isn't phased, instead becomes even angrier, and replies that he must learn to be more proactive, and with that ends the discussion. Over the course of the entire meeting, the boss doesn't fail to dwell on any of his employees' mistakes, no matter how trivial, some of which date back weeks. What is remarkable is that it was initially the boss who was at fault. He was late. However, in the end, it was everyone else who felt inadequate. Here is where, what in psychoanalysis is called the defence mechanism of projection, comes into play and a narcissist makes great use of it. Projection is a basic psychological mechanism by which a person's own often very intense feelings and experiences are externalised, for example, by transferring them to another person. This inner state of mind then resurfaces in the external world as a mirror image. With the mechanism of projection, we can understand the question, are you hungry, as actually meaning, I am hungry, or the feeling of being the subject of others' envy, as actually the feeling of being consumed by one's own envy, or the fear of being rejected by others, as actually the fear of one's own self-loathing, etc. Whereby these examples, of course, do oversimplify the matter somewhat. To begin with, projections do have an important function. It is often only through locating inner feelings on the outside that they can be made more manageable, although they may still be unpleasant. If it is the others who are stupid and disorganised, this may anger me but I need not be ashamed. If it is the other who hates me, then at least I can take steps on the outside to more easily protect myself. I can, for example, run away, which is not possible if the hatred resides in me. Like all defence mechanisms, projections are important for maintaining psychological stability. Narcissists, however, employ this defence mechanism in excessive and extreme ways. So it is all too often the case that what the narcissist charges others with actually applies instead 
to their own innermost fears and troubles. It is not I who does a bad job. It is not I who is unreliable. It is not I who is fearful, clumsy, weak, or stupid. It is the other. Incidentally, this defence mechanism is one of the reasons why narcissists so seldom seek therapy, or, if they do, why it is often so laborious, and, if it is not abandoned far too early, why it can be so lengthy. For the narcissist doesn't see that they have a problem. The problem always lies with someone else. If they are savvy, a narcissist may succeed in creating a kind of narcissistic world to surround themselves with, and this structure may offer them with relative stability in life. Any such environment they create will often be characterised by structures of profound and deeply entangled dependency. For the mirror of narcissism does its work on others too also awakening in them their own longings, for example, for a strong parental figure, or provoking aggressive feelings and resentments, legitimise aggressive effects that are otherwise subject to psychological censorship. The phenomenon of Trump is hard to understand without this dynamic. Furthermore, in relationships, This frequently plays out in the fantasy of being the only person who can save the narcissist, who can help and free them. Indeed, this too is a bond given strength by a narcissistic vision. As we have heard, a narcissist is deeply dependent on others, for admiration and confirmation can only be applied from the outside. In keeping with the idea of projection, however, they must at the same time avoid this very feeling of dependency at all costs. Hence, the situation must be reversed. Others must be made dependent upon them. It is difficult to avoid dependencies in life, but they at least appear more manageable if the arrows of dependency point away from the narcissist. This is one of the reasons why narcissistic individuals so often occupy positions of leadership and power in our society. For example, a professor or boss generates dependencies by virtue of their institutional position, while being able to move around quite freely themselves. But the narcissist will also make sure not to feel too dependent in private relationships. For this reason, narcissists tend to have superficial and non-committal relationships. There are, however, also narcissistic people who manage to form lasting bonds. In fact, a very durable relationship may instead develop, whereby durable is not the same thing as good and mutually enriching. For example, it is frequently the case that narcissists select seemingly inferior partners who are depressed, exhibit dependent personality traits, are significantly younger, less experienced, more naive. In short, someone who easily identifies with the narcissist's many projections 
because of an established hierarchy or their own inner insecurity. If, for example, the arrow of dependency one day changes direction, say, because the partner or co-worker recognises at last not only their own dependency, but also that of the narcissist, and thus decides to break up or quit, then this will often lead to very messy and at times even violent power struggles. These power struggles can be fought out on emotional, verbal or physical terms. The narcissist's chief aim is to once again make the other person dependent. The underlying violence carried out is at first often subliminal and subtle, and yet unabated and gruelling. For example, by constantly undermining the self-worth of the other, as in such sentences, huh? That's what you studied? Well, those departments have to justify themselves somehow. Or, come on my little chubby, don't get your feelings hurt. You know I think your muffin top is cute. The more dependent a narcissist feels on someone else, the more that person wants to distance themselves from the narcissist. The greater the narcissistic crisis becomes, and this also means the more the conflict escalates externally, the more the latent violence embedded in the relationship becomes overt. Others are put under enormous pressure, threatened and attacked openly, not only by exploiting the power structures of institutions or relationships. In some circumstances, the violence can also take on quite physical forms, even leading, in extreme cases, to murder, or, if the very last bit of self-worth breaks off, the violence can also be directed against oneself, by killing oneself. But what leads to a narcissistic personality structure, to this sort of a hardened character armour? In the biographies of the most narcissistic people can be found serious traumas, most often related to severe abandonment, emotional neglect, abrupt breaks in their relationships, for example, as a result of deaths, and so on. These children have often had the experience of not knowing a helpful or empathetic person who can accept their dependent, needy and helpless side. The other is absent, physically or psychologically, some place far away, where they are hardened and out of reach. The child begins to feel that it has no right to live as a being in need of love, full of longing and its own will, and seeks to erase just this part inside itself that is dependent in need of love and independence by warding off any feelings associated with it. Dependence, longing, weakness, vulnerability or by displacing them onto others. If the narcissistic defence strategies do become fragile at some point, they usually result in major crises and psychological breakdowns. It is precisely this helpless and powerless child that through the counter-transference is able to trigger the greatest feelings of pity in others. Even when narcissists treat others badly, 
they still give one the feeling that under no circumstances should they be harmed, for they are already so deeply vulnerable. For this momentary instant, their once so powerless and actually so helpless being comes to light. What is so tragic is that allowing oneself to get involved with such a person, a person who is in fact so needy, and trying to offer them the support they need, only leads back into a vortex of dependencies and projection. The truth is that the only way to extricate oneself from this is to distance oneself from the narcissist. Without noticing it, the narcissist's traumatic repetition compulsion consists in recreating the very situation they fear the most, being abandoned and rejected. The tragedy of narcissism is that the very thing that is yearned for the most that must be achieved by all means, to be seen, recognised and loved, is, in the end, lost through those very same means. This podcast was written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. It has been translated by Suleiman Lawrence and is read by Rebecca Dyson-Smith.